All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. Pretty new listeners to the Money Wise program. Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 33rd year of business, and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast streaming apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. Well, as we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turned it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down about 43 points, or one-tenth of 1%. The S&P 500 last week was up a little less than three points, or one-tenth of 1%. And the NASDAQ last week was up about 92 points, or seven-tenths of 1%. Now, we just finished the month of March, so I want to go over the numbers for the month of March. The Dow was up about 2.3%. The S&P was up a little over 35 and the NASDAQ was de- was up about 3.4%. Finally, we finished the first quarter of 2022 with the Dow down 4.5%, the S&P down just shy of 5%, and the NASDAQ down a little more than 9%. The first down quarter for the S&P 500, I believe, in the last two years. I don't think we've had a down quarter since uh, March, I guess the quarter ending in March of 2020, which is the right at the beginning of COVID. Um, well, I was, gonna, I was just going to jump of volatility, right in. Uh, more, more volatility this week, for sure. Uh, uh, yeah, and I'm going to I want to jump in deep first before I let my let let my brother jump in. Are, are um, you cannonballing right in the deep end right from the start? Is this what we're doing? Well, I guess so. I start fight think, night early, so <laughs> it's not you know, fight night. It's constructive dialogue about portfolios and portfolio management. And this is what this whole show from day one, going back to 05, was about pulling the curtain back on Wall Street, pulling the curtain back on conversations that portfolio management teams have when it comes to making decisions in real market time and real market conditions. So the battle continues between the bulls and the bears, uh, between those that believe that, Valuations on stocks are too high and have to come down, and they're looking at these second quarter earnings reports to potentially be the beginning uh, 
of the bringing down of expectations, not only for growth, but for earnings going forward. Um, then you have the other side of the coin uh, where they look at what's happened here in the last three to six months as more of a growth scare and that the second quarter earnings that will be coming out here in the next two weeks will show that companies are managing uh, the higher inflation environment uh, that's not really affecting their uh, margins to the extent that some in Wall Street believe or may, may occur. <clears throat> um, that's the two sides. And so what you're getting is you're getting this the daily ups and downs and ebbs and flows and on on Thursday the last day of the quarter we saw a huge reversal in the markets in the last I think it was the last half hour I was yeah I was in a hour, prospect, 15 minutes I was in a prospect notice? meeting starting at 2 and once the meeting was over at 3:30 and I looked up and I saw the Dow was down 555 points on Thursday, when did this? You know, what happened? What was the news story? There was no news story. It Rebalancing, was, window it, dressing it, for the end of the quarter. It's is really traders, what it was. Traders, well, traders are going to trade. Traders, and, and if you notice the Nasdaq, the S and P, and the Dow, they were all down about one and a half percent on Thursday. That's been a while since I've seen every one of those indexes almost react in direct direct correlation to each other. So that you know, so there was a Jeff, lot of chatter. There was a lot of chatter. Hold on. There was a lot of chatter this week about inverted yield curves and all this jockeying between what should we be looking at? Should we be looking at the two-year versus the 10-year? Is it the three-year versus the 10-year? Is it the five-year versus the 10-year? You know, what is the greatest indicator, the most reliable indicator of, of the coming Potential. recession? Potential. Potential. Yeah. Exactly. Potential. And so on, on Friday, and I just have a few, few numbers in front of me. The two year, three year, five year, seven year, and 10 year treasuries, their yields went out on Friday. Between the group of them, there's maybe a tenth of a percent difference. And most of them, two, three, fives, and sevens, are, their yields were all above the 10-year Treasury yield. So technically there's an inversion between you know, the 2 and the 7 versus the 10, but a day or two of inversion does not a recession bring. It, it has to be over a much longer period. Yes, Kyle? Well, as, as an old saying on Wall Street, every recession has – started with an inverted yield curve, but not all inverted yield curves have led to a recession. So it's important for our listeners to understand that. And I just, one quick correction, Jeff, you're saying second quarter earnings, we're talking first quarter earnings that are going to be coming out in April. Just, just quick correction, just quick correction. But you know, the other thing you missed or really what the Fed particularly looks at is the three month to 10 year yield curve and what the spread is there. And the spread right now is 180 basis points or 1.80%. So there is still nowhere close to an inversion yeah, of the, the three-month treasury to the 10-year treasury. The Fed may look at that, but that's not what the stock market looks at when it talks about inverted yield curves. But that's not what they're, that's not what the markets look at. 
<clears throat> now, but, but do, we, do, any of us here, do any of us think here think that we're going to have a recession in the next six months? No. 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 In, in the next year? No. Okay. It's I don't probably think so. not okay. not with these employment not with this employment data. No way. Well, I see we're coming up to the break. Well, and, and and when we come back from break, I wanted to give a little statistics that go back to 1965 when we have an inversion of the two-year Treasury yield to the 10-year Treasury yield, and how the market has performed, and the amount of time it has taken on average to get to that recessionary. Uh, economic conditions. So we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's Money Wise program, continuing our recap from the happenings of Wall Street from last week, and try not to get too deep in the technical weeds on the yield curves for the Treasury market, whether it's a two-year to ten-year inversion, which we actually had this past week, and what that means for the potential of a recession in the next, you know, several months to a year looking forward. You know, are, is the Fed paying attention to the three-month to 10-year Treasury yield, which has a very nice spread that's not even close to inverting? And so we're just kind of getting deep in that conversation. And this is important to know because, you know, markets can, you know, move on this information because we do know how much trading is being done by computer algorithms that are just searching for certain data points without the intervention of human beings. And so it's really important to understand this information when it comes to your own portfolio and making sure you're knowing what you own and making adjustments and changes in your portfolio if need be. So, Jeff, did you want me to go right into the stats that I had about the two to ten year? Okay. Absolutely. So since going back to 1965, and, and just for those that maybe just tuned in and didn't hear me say this, that, for every recession we have had, there has been an inversion in the yield curve that preceded it. But every time the yield curve has inverted, didn't necessarily lead to a recession. So it's just important to understand that, you know, that distinction. But since 1965, it has taken on average 18 months from when an inversion has occurred between the two-year Treasury yield and the ten-year Treasury and the ten-year Treasury yield before a recession took place, so there was an 18-month span, and during that 18-month span of once that inversion occurred, the S&P 500 on average has been up 19.56 percent. So I just wanted to kind of food for thought for all of our listeners that just because we saw a short-term inversion of the two-year Treasury yield to the 10-year Treasury doesn't necessarily mean that 
a, a recession is going to be occurring in the next handful of months or in the next couple of quarters because since 1965, it's taken on average 18 months before a recession has occurred. But the market has returned on average just under 20%. It has been up during that time period. So that's food for thought. And this is the big conversation Jeff and I and Joe have gotten into in our portfolio strategy meetings. But markets can't go down without the economy being in a recession. Markets go down typically in recessions, but they can also go down prior to recessions, um, as has happened many times in the past. You know, I'm looking at it from a, a, a position of the current valuation of stocks, where we are in terms of interest rates, how far the current level of interest rates is behind in relation to where we are with inflation. And I was talking about, and I'm going to kind of expand on that a little bit. We were talking, I was talking to Kyle earlier on Friday about a time period in the past when inflation was as high as it is today. And the, one of the examples that I found was in 1982. Because we've been talking about all year long. Well, we talk, well, February, they talk about how the inflation's the highest it's been in 40 years. So that would take us back to 1982. I was a sophomore in high school in 1982. And that year, gross domestic product was a minus 1.8%. Unemployment was 10.8%. And inflation in that year was 6.2%, very similar in terms of the inflation number to where we are today. And I asked Kyle, I said, Kyle, what was the Fed funds rate in March of 1982? And the first number you gave out, I said, no. It was a high single digit. It was a high single digit. And you doubled it, and I said, no. And you doubled it again, and I said, no. It was 15%. Fed's funds rate in, on March the 30th, 1982 was 15%. And we had 6.2% inflation that year. Right now we got a Fed funds rate of what? A quarter of a percent? And inflation right now is running in the sevens? Thereabouts? Uh, that's, it's, well, it just depends. Are we talking about the PCE deflator number, yeah, which is about 5.4? I'm talking about it's about five points by the CPI, the consumer price index. Yeah, Joe. What what were the catalysts in the mid 1980s that that caused inflation? That high inflation. I mean, oil was hangover, right? Yeah, it was a hangover from the oil embargo. It was the hangover from the Carter administration. Well, I think that would probably be the best one to answer that question from you know right off the top of my head. Uh, You're because older, so you those, those, yeah, th- those type, those, those were all the, I was seven. Yeah, I was seven. Ra- you know, Reagan was, <laughs> oh, no. Reagan was president in 82, if I remember correctly. Um, yes. what I'm kind of driving towards is, uh, the relative rate of inflation versus the relative rate of interest rates given that level of inflation. And I was going to, find that S&P 500 uh but but, but uh, fortunately Jeff, I don't have the, I don't have the, I don't have the PE ratio of the S&P 500 in 1982 I'm going to find that yes Kyle I can get it to you I can get it to you well the one thing that I wanted right. to throw in there because you were talking about 6.2% inflation back in 1982 
We saw the Fed fund, you know, the Fed fund rate at 15%. A 30 year treasury was paying over 14%. That's right. And that, at, at, in that point in time, bonds, the bond market was a definite competitor to the stock market. The stock market would have a very tough road to hoe when you're getting a 30 year treasury at 14 plus percent with inflation around six. So you had a net positive real return of 8%. That is a great rate of return when you look at the the stock market's complete history of return. Going back to the 1800s, the stock market has averaged around 6%. So 8% in real return and, and a real return rate back in 1982, that would be a competitor to the stock market. Unfortunately, the bond market is not a competitor to the stock market. That's the point is that the bond market is so – disjointed from reality right now based on inflation, based on unemployment. Interest rates are just so disjointed from the reality economically that they, this, this, the Fed has to get normalization. And we don't know exactly what that normalization of interest rates are. But the point that I'm driving to is as we're trying to normalize these interest rates, it has implications for stocks. Well, and those implications, yes, Jeff. Well, Jeff, to your point, yes, it's true. But what is the Fed? I think a 50 bit, 50 basis point rate hike is already in the cards right now. So I think part of the market has baked that in already. Maybe even well, two. I, think, I, I, yeah, I totally agree with Joe. I it, totally agree with Joe. In, has it baked in the potential for 50 basis point increases over the next four or five meetings? Okay, but hold on. All right. So let's stop right there. The Fed in this, because of what has caused the majority of this inflation is a hangover from go. the COVID pandemic. <laughs> you can't you can't discount that, Jeff. You cannot discount the COVID pandemic because this has been one of the biggest driving forces behind the inflation we have today. So I agree with Joe. Is a fifty is is a half a one percent Fed fund rate increase in May probably baked into the market? I would say yes, possibly too. Poss- which would take the federal funds rate to one and a quarter percent. Now, I'm sorry, a one and quarter percent, a 10-year treasury at 3% is not going to be putting any of our listeners on easy street. If we still have inflation at four and a half to 5%, they will have a net negative real return. So then what is left to invest in? Well, you can hold cash, which you'll lose purchasing power to inflation. You can go and buy gold. I've looked at the charts of gold. It's done nothing. It's moved sideways for months and months and months. And, and, we owned it. And, and hold on, Joe. And we owned it during the financial crisis, and it earned us nothing. We got in and then got out exactly what we invested. So that that's not the saving grace. So then it comes back again to the acronym. There is no alternative. And that is the stock market. Well, now, if there is I no alternative, you, Jeff, why is my, why is, well, no, no, if there is no alternative, why well, is let it down 5% this year? Okay. So, because what, what's happening is there was a knee jerk reaction by the computers that occurred on the very first week of the market of the new year when they were talking about the, the, the Fed letting their balance sheet roll off, kind of pulling liquidity out of the market. These algorithms get triggered, oh. this mass selling, and then you have all well, these traders in here that are constantly up, doing up. all of this trading. I see we're coming up on Just a break. So. <laughs> oh, you, oh, you just, no, the spirit just of John David, <laughs> referee, timeout. 
That's okay. right. All right. So let's let's take another commercial break. We'll pick this conversation up on the other side. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts where you can leave your comments and don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's Money Wise program, continuing our recap of the happenings on Wall Street last week, and we were getting into the debate, and Jeff, you asked a very good question towards the very bottom of the hour about, okay, so if the stock market, there is no alternative, why is it down 5% in the first quarter of this year? Well, as we all know, investing in the market, the market doesn't always go up in a straight line. There are periods of time where the market has to take a break, where there has to be some repricing that occurs. And then once it kind of forms that new base, then it can move up from there. The fact of the matter is, is we've had a dovish Federal Reserve really going back to the beginning of 2019. I mean, we we know when the Fed turned hawkish in the fourth quarter of 2018, we had that Christmas coal in our stockings correction, very snap correction that occurred. But as we talked late last year on, on this show, excuse me, that that the market was in a position where we knew that there was going to be more volatility going into 2022. We knew that the Federal Reserve was going to have to do some kind of stepping in to help moderate this inflation, which is not as transitory as they once thought. It's more of a protracted transitory situation, which is what uh, I truly what? believe. Prota- whoa, whoa, whoa. Protracted transitory. Is this it's going to new- take us longer. This it's is just new. going no, wait, to take wanna, longer. Okay, let me, let me get in here. So I want to take – I want to go back. I, I am not discounting uh, this COVID's effect on inflation. Uh, I'm ignoring it at this point because I really don't think I really don't think COVID has anything to do with the current level of inflation because we're not wow. locked up. We're not locked up. The problem is people aren't they need people to move stuff around, they need people to manufacture things. The Chinese continue to shut down their cities over COVID themselves, not us here. That's the Chinese doing that. But this whole issue with jobs and the, all these job openings and the low level of it. Now we've gotten our unemployment rate down to almost where it was pre-COVID. Kyle will go into some deep, deep statistics if we want to get deep in the weeds about other numbers. I'm going to say we don't need to do it. All of those are telling me that those are, those are inflationary statistics to me. The number of job openings versus the number of people wanting to work. Are people, you know, people available to work? That sounds inflationary to me because there's more jobs available than there are people willing to work. And that means the people, the, the job seekers, I mean, the, the, the job offer people, the, the companies offering jobs, they got to pay more to get people in the door to do the work. And so to me, the whole key is, is this in, 
until we can get inflation down, and nobody knows when that's going to be. Nobody knows if we're going to if we're going to have seven percent inflation for the next couple of years, three years. Do we have to make up for all those years that we had inflation below historic norms? Remember all those years we had one and two and you know less than three inflation, and they were always talking about deflation. You know, the Fed was worried about deflation and all that. And, you know, and, that's and all how out. can we boost? And how can we boost that's right, the inflation? We, well, it's here. How can we? It, well, it's, I know it's, it's here, here now. It, but, so let me but, answer your question. Back with a vengeance. So yeah. So let me ask, answer your question. Well, we still have some employees that are not in the workforce because they were able to save a large amount of money through government stimulus and the wild spending that was taking place during the COVID pandemic. Now the savings rates, they just reported this past week that saving rates are starting to decline. A couple of weeks ago, a statistic came out that there was over $2 trillion sitting in savings accounts across this country. These saving rates are starting to come down. So eventually these savings rates are going to come down to a point where folks that have been able to sit on the sidelines because they're able to save a lot of money, pay down debt, and they live extremely modestly, they're realizing, you know what, I've got to get back out in the labor force and i got to start working. So as we get to this tipping point where these folks that have been out of the labor force for a year to two years because of COVID – finally don't have enough savings and have to pay their bills. They have to get back out to work. So now we have more workers coming in, more competition amongst other workers. And so employers will have a broader field to choose from. So that will help with some of the wage inflation that is occurring. So we know that the fuel inflation, that's going to be here to stay for quite a period of time because the Biden administration has made it very well known. We're going to do everything we can to try to get us off hydrocarbons in this country right now. Everyone has to drive an electric car right now. Kyle Bass, who is a hedge fund manager in Dallas, who I really listen to what he's, you know, what he talks about, you know, he said that like Joe, like we've said it on this program, it has to be a more logical transition where it's a mix. It's a balance between hydrocarbons and then slowly over the next 30 to 40 years transitioning to all electric. But we can't jam this down the throat of the consumer when the average electric car costs sixty thousand dollars. Well, and that they can't even get around logical. to making these cars unless they have copper and all these uh, the, the lithium. There's a shortage. There, there's no there's way they're going to sh- get around to doing that, you know. And, and That's right. On cars, who's going to buy that, the EV car if it costs a third more than the gas car? Who's going to that, buy? That's it? right. And there's and there's no place to charge it, and we have a shortage of lithium, and a lot of the lithium comes in from overseas, and so we have to, tr- you know, has to be shipped in here, which I think adds to adds to the you know effects of the mother of of, of Mother Earth and the environment. But but all I'm saying is is that we have to have a logical transition. So we are going to see higher inflation on the fuel side for a while. But as these workers start to come back in the workforce, Jeff, it might take another six to eight months. I'm not saying well, no, that no, inflation is going to be. I think it's going to take longer. Okay. You and I talked about this before. I thought that the reason it, it was going to take multiple years of folks getting out of college to, to take, because what's going to happen is you have the, the upper management retires. And then all these people down the the corporate ladder move up a step, which opens up mm-hmm. entry level jobs. And so you've got all this all 
you got to soak up all this demand of, of all these jobs at the entry level from all these kids to get out. They got to get out of school to take these jobs. And we don't know. We don't know specifically the distribution of the jobs that are available. Are they all college education jobs? Are they all in retail or majority in retail? Are they in, in, in manufacturing? Uh, food, manufacturing? Are they, we are don't, they we don't, Bitcoin? You know. Right, Bitcoin. <laughs> we we don't we don't even know. That's not a job, okay? Yeah. Can we get back to Tina real quick? Because you say yeah, you're you're right. commenting like why why is the market down five percent year to day? I'm rounding it off. If if we have Tina, meaning there is no alternative, I mean stocks is the only alternative. And I think the reason the markets are down five percent is for the exact reason of the discussion that we're having here today. There's this. There's the battle between the bulls and the bears trying to figure out how to this equation between inflation expectations, interest rate increases, and the velocity of interest rate increases, looking at history and what history has told us about times like this, relative levels of valuation that are still historically higher than average. They've come down. I'll grant you that, but the E earnings is still a got a bunch of question marks next to it. And so this number that we have right now, and I think what was it, twenty one, Kyle, twenty one times basic on the S and P five hundred is the current PE 20, 20, based on current ninety two. Twenty okay, twenty five ninety two. Yeah, about twenty six. It's, it's still higher. It's historically higher than normal. It's historically higher than normal. Now our how are we going to justify that number going forward if we're in an environment that appears the Fed's battle royale is going to be against inflation? And the only tools that they have to battle inflation are raising Fed funds rates and the quantitative ease in which they, no one's really talked about. We're probably going to hear about it a little bit next week when we get the meeting minutes out from the previous Fed meeting, what they're thinking about their bond buying activities and how those activities are going to have, to me, they're going to have an effect on the longer end of the yield curve and start moving those longer, those long, those longer rates higher. Um, once they start doing the, the QE stuff, all this stuff on the Fed funds. QE or really, QT? You're talking QT, about QT. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah. Q, sorry. All the stuff <laughs> they're doing on Fed, on Fed funds is really affecting the shorter end of the yield curve, you know, five years, three years, two years, one year, that that side of the yield curve. The longer side of the yield curve has got to move up. We've got to get this curve back. We don't have a curve right now. It looks like a plateau. It looks like a – It, uh, it just undulates. A, yeah, it just undulates. So well, I was going to say – I'm going to speak for a second. The yield curve, they have to do this QT, and when they start doing the QT, that's going to have an effect on stocks so, also. So if you want to know market, show. if you want to know where the market's down five percent, you have pandemic, you have inflation, you have interest rates, you have uncertainty with earnings, and then you have geopolitical risk. So you want to know when the market's down in a nutshell? That's why the market likes clarity. And, 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 and for but, all of but none of it's changed. Of it's all as as murky now as it was two months ago. Okay, but for all of that, for the market to only be down five percent, I would say that it's weathering the storm quite well. But let's. Take another, let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. 
you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments and don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, and Joe, I wanted to go back, you know, to, to kind of your point. You know, we're talking about you know, the Federal Reserve turning, turning more hawkish. Big questions about first quarter earnings, geopolitical risks, uh, the COVID pandemic and, you know, getting that in the rearview mirror. And we've got higher inflation with this con- confluence of all of these different um, data points and, and information. I would say that with the S&P 500 just rounding up being down 5%, year to date, I would say it's weathering the storm quite well with all of the the confluence of all these different points that I just made. And I I just want to say to all of our listeners that, you know, during any kind of year in the market, there can be periods where the bulls and the bears are having this tug of war. And we are definitely on a daily basis having a much more obvious tug of war between the bulls and the bears daily. But I will say this, there can be multiple quarters where the Bears are winning. But I will say this with confidence, over the longer term, the Bulls win. And I can say that with confidence because since 1926, out of all the years since 1926, the stock market is positive 74% of the time. So over the longer term, the Bulls win out. But there can be periods of time. It could be, there could be a year. There could even be two years where the Bears win for a period of time, but over the longer term, the Bulls are consistently winners. And so for investors, this is where you have to have that emotional gut check. And and I want to go back and, and, and say one thing about, you know, talking about higher price earning multiple stocks. I mean, Jeff, you're right. We saw some of these higher flying stocks get taken out to the woodshed and beaten mercilessly this past quarter. And they're still going to have some of these stocks. They're going to have their day in the barrel again as first quarter earnings come out. But I truly believe that a company with solid fundamentals, rock-solid fundamentals, as we have a proprietary screening process that we utilize and have been utilizing for decades here at Davidson Capital Management, that over the long term, these fundamentals will prevail. That doesn't mean that these stocks can't go down 20 or 30% and be down for a shorter period of time. But I'm a true believer in taking that longer-term perspective in any investment portfolio to allow the fundamentals to shine through over the long term. Yeah, Joe. Well, I I think the lesson here is to say discipline with your approach and your portfolio and what you're doing. And the playbook is still – there's a playbook that's been written for the last two years, and I can't tell you how many times, you know, we as a team have had to call an audible. And it gets gets pretty difficult and challenging in these times. But I think the one lesson that you have to take is, like I said, be disciplined in your approach. Yes, you want to diversify. And 
to tactically manage a portfolio right now is, is pretty difficult, especially when you're looking at some of the, the experts, the talking heads on TV, and none of them can agree on what the future looks like, especially the near-term future through the end of the year. Well, there so, are some there are some decisions that are very easy to make, and those decisions are you don't own any long maturity bonds in your portfolio. I mean, I can't. I saw, I saw another portfolio this week, four hundred one k managed, and they had long maturity corporate bonds as one of the asset allocations because this whole Monte Carlo analysis. Passive investing strategy is you put all your money in 15 different uh, asset classes and forget about it because history has shown that those you know 15 asset classes over the long term, never touching them, is is gonna is gonna be the way to go. Well, there are many times when one, two, three, five, ten of those asset classes are out of favor. And if you're and in sometimes them, for long periods of time, and sometimes for long periods of time, emerging markets, um, and now, and now long maturity bonds, yeah, yeah. they're going to be they're going to be out of favor for a long time. And if you still have them in your portfolio and your advisor still has you in them, why? Why are they doing this? The reason is because they're not managing. They're not managing the portfolio, and I get all fired up about it. Because here, you know, here we go again. Another example of 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 this passive well, strategy well, where they charge you manage, management fees, Jeff, but there's no management occurring. Jeff, you mentioned international. There's a very well known fund I'm looking at. Looked at Friday. It's down 12 percent for the year, and it is in probably 80 percent of the 401ks that are out there. And as of the the end of uh, the quarter, it's down. The A share is down 12.32 percent. So, well, Jeff, just to add on to your point about fixed income, the Bloomberg U.S. Corporate Investment Grade Aggregate Bond Index for the first quarter of this year was down 7.69%, and the S&P 500 was down 4.6%. So again, there is this, and we've talked about it, this, we've talked about that on this show, that some investors have this mindset, I can't lose money in bonds. No, you absolutely can lose money in bonds. And in fact, the bond index, the, the Bloomberg U.S. corporate investment grade aggregate bond index underperformed the stock market. So we basically had both bond market and stock market negative in the first quarter of this year, which is not typical. That typically doesn't happen because the stock and bond market, they're competitors. They compete for investors assets. And so typically when the stock market's not doing as well, the bond market does better. That's not the case in this past quarter. And so for anyone that's listening that's participating in a 401k, this goes back to what we always educate on this program, knowing what you own, making but sure he, if you have a stable value option in your 401k, if you want to own fixed income, it should be completely in that stable value fund, period, and be thankful that you have it because not all 401ks offer a stable value. But even if you're not in a 401k and you're in one of these other managed account programs, if you have long maturity bond bonds in your portfolio or bond mutual funds in your portfolio, why? If you have emerging markets in your portfolio, why? If you have international mutual funds in your portfolio, why? If you have high yield bonds in your portfolio, why? Why? 
That's, That's the difference and if, between. And if your advisor can't answer why, maybe you need another advisor. Well, again, I think that's the difference between working with someone on the financial sales side of the business and working with a registered investment advisor that actually manage assets in-house for their clients, which we have been doing now in our 33rd year here at Davidson Capital Management. But you have to be able to ask those questions, but the first step is you have to know what you own in your portfolio. Well, with that, we're coming up to the top of the hour break, so we'll take the break, go into the news, and when we come back, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us here at Davidson Capital Management, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Now, if you missed the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise shows. And you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage. So in our second hour of this weekend's program, again, like to use the second hour to go into investor education. And the topic for this second hour is really a topic that needs to be on an on a rotation each and every month because it is such a critical topic for investors all across the country to learn, understand, and realize when it comes to the point of them selecting an investment professional to work with and what they need to be looking for and how they can research and find out the background and education levels and licensing levels of the investment professional that they're planning on working with. Now, a topic that we have discussed on past Money Wise programs, and I feel like we've been talking about this for years. I think from the beginning of the show. Well, I know that we've talked about this particular subject, again, the differences between a broker, a stockbroker, and a registered investment advisor, but in particular the the research and analysis that the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing when it comes down to the fiduciary standard. Uh, and later on in this hour, I'm going to go into the definition of the fiduciary standard and what stockbrokers, what laws and directions they have to follow working with their clients and what what laws and rules and regulations that registered investment advisors like us here at Davidson Capital Management have to follow, and in particular revolving around this fiduciary standard, because this has been a topic that has been discussed at length really post-financial crisis. Um, And 
the Dodd-Frank Act, which took effect in 2010, put in uh, an actual an actual law that goes into the ability of the Securities and Exchange Commission to create a uniform fiduciary standard, which has yet to actually take place uh, across the financial service industry. And an article that came out of the Wall Street Journal this past week uh, titled SEC uh, Head Backs Fiduciary Standards for Brokers and Advisors again goes into Mary Jo White, who's the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know, really wanting tighter standards uh, for financial advisors who recommend stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to individual investors. And for any longtime listener to this program, they understand that your traditional stockbroker is on the financial sales side of the financial service industry where registered investment advisors like us at Davidson Capital Management are on the asset management side of the industry. Well, let me say something right here, Kyle. The word advisor, I think, confuses the man in the street. In the old days, when I was a broker, we were either a broker or a registered representative. Advisors, financial advisors or investment advisors, by definition, we're registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What has happened is the word registered representative or broker has been dropped by Wall Street, and they have picked up various terms which they really like to use, whether it's a wealth manager or a they like financial to use advisor. financial advisor, but they obviously don't say registered financial advisor because they wouldn't be working for a brokerage firm or registered few. investment advisor. So, so, so you the word advisor confuses the investor in the street. It it, it does, and a, again, I don't. I mean, I, I would hate to say that this is just strictly marketing, but it really comes down it is to marketing. marketing. It it does come down to marketing, and it's to convey the idea to a potential to a prospective client that the powers and abilities of that investment professional are above and beyond what they actually legally can do or what they normally do do with you know when it comes to working with their clients and you know last month the labor department is planning its own set of rules to tighten standards on financial professionals who advise on retirement account investments such as 401ks and of course and, Bar- president yes, obama, president obama came- has endorsed these these we haven't had a president get involved and 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 so he came out several months back talking about wanting to have these new standards and and you know really the department of labor is going and saying well hey we're putting in these new standards securities and exchange commission why don't you put these standards in as well and mary jo white the head of the sec makes it very clear that you know we're two different regulatory agencies and that we have our own processes and procedures that we have to go through in order to put this into place, but that she had, she had stated that she has been intensely studying this fiduciary standard regulations and what exactly the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to do. Now, the fact that she's been intensely studying this for just the last few months, I feel like we've been talking about this for years, so why is it just being intensely studied over just the last couple of months. Well, maybe before we put our listeners totally to sleep using these fiduciary words and whatnot, why not give an example of why this should be something our listeners should be listening to? Well, I'm going to have to get to that example after we come back from the commercial break because the, the, the story... The no, you didn't check the clock. The, the, 
the 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 real world example I'm going to give, and and it really could apply to some of our a lot of our listeners that are listening right now of what you might run into when it comes to that point in time where you're ready to hop on that horse and ride off into the retirement sunset and you start going out and interviewing investment professionals that you might be planning or or looking to work with. And as we've always advocated on this show, don't get caught behind the eight ball when it comes time to prepare and plan for your retirement as far as the investment professional that you're going to work with. You need to start the interview process six to eight months out, even 12 months out, just so you get all of your ducks in a row because the last thing we would want to see happen, and we've seen this time and time again talking and working with prospective clients coming into Davidson Capital Management, is that they waited to the last minute, they got thrown a sales pitch at them, that sounded so good to be true, too good to be true, but they signed on that dotted line and wound up getting involved in something that they wound up later regretting because they didn't do their proper due diligence uh, and doing the research it, It's re- research that's required before you hire an investment professional. So when we come back from the commercial break, I'll give you an example of going into the differences between suitability and fiduciary standard, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education, um, and again, I, I know we were talking during commercial break that some of this subject matter might be seen dry and boring, but this hour is so critical for any investor to listen and to learn from to protect themselves, to protect the retirement nest egg that they have worked 30, 35, 40, 45 years to build to not get taken by potentially unscrupulous investment professionals that are looking to make a very large and quick buck and big commission and to understand the rules and regulations that folks follow in the financial service industry and how they vary so greatly between that of your traditional stockbroker versus a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management. So I wanted to give you a real-world example, and this comes from one of our clients, this real-world example. Um, Several years ago, we had met, I mean, several, I mean, we're talking six, seven years ago, met with a prospective client who was going to be retiring and had, excuse me, had already retired had purchased an annuity, very sizable annuity, and the annuity was getting ready to be outside of its surrender penalty period. And they were looking to do something else with it. So they met with us, gave them you know, the, whole, the whole spiel, uh, the whole presentation as we do with any prospective client after we did a, a portfolio review and analysis for this prospective client. And I remember distinctly remembering in the meeting I, I told him, Whatever you do, 
whether you hire us or you hire somebody else, do not buy another annuity. And he said, gotcha. Got it. Understand. So this prospective client goes, leaves our office, follow up with them, don't hear back from them. About 16 months later, we get a phone call, and it was this prospective client. And he said, I need to come in and talk to you. Okay. Comes in. Before I even round my desk, he says, you're probably wondering why I'm here. I'm like, sure. Why are you here? He said, well, I should have listened to your advice, and I didn't. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look. And he hands me his paperwork, and what he had bought was another annuity, a variable annuity. And I asked him why. You know, give me the background as to what you did. He said, I called two stockbrokers in New York City. I called two stockbrokers in the state of Florida. I called a stockbroker in San Antonio, Texas. And all five of these stockbrokers all recommended an annuity to me. And he said, after talking to all five of these different brokers, at different offices, at different firms, in different states, he thought to himself, well, if all five of these brokers are recommending annuity, then this is the direction that I need to go. This is what I should be buying because these five folks don't know each other from Adam, and they don't even work for the same firms, but that's what they're recommending. And, of course, when I relayed to the prospective client who then became a client that the reason why they were recommending it is because it pays the highest commission on Wall Street and explained to him round about the six-figure commission that was paid to these brokers, I just about saw his jaw hit the floor. Well, he wanted a guaranteed stream of income. That is what he wanted. It was important to him to have a monthly check. So when he went to these brokers and said, I want a guaranteed stream of income that I know it's coming in, well, the brokers basically have two choices, both of which are suitable for him. Choice number one is an annuity. Whichever insurance company that brokerage firm uses, they will select that annuity. That annuity will pay the most generous commission there is for a broker on Wall Street today, as far as we know. The other choice to provide guaranteed income is a government bond. In fact, it's the only investment, not the annuity, that can truly say, say it provides a guaranteed stream of income. The only difference being the income can vary because government bond rates will vary with maturities. For the broker, however, the commission on the same portfolio is about 98 99% less than what he would be getting personally in the annuity. That is why five different brokers from five different firms in four different states all had the same example. They were both suitable investments, and the broker only has to do what is suitable. And that is the whole point of this second hour is to relay real-world examples of the difference between suitability and fiduciary. And just to kind of go into that, you know, what is a fiduciary? A fiduciary is someone that manages money for the benefit of, of another called a beneficiary. A fiduciary is bound by law to place the interest of its beneficiary first before the fiduciary's own interest. 
Now, stockbrokers also called registered representatives, account executives, financial well, advisors, uh, wealth managers are not fiduciaries. Even though they have engaged in high visibility advertising to portray themselves as full service investment advisors, it's real easy. Ask your stockbroker if he or she holds a Series 7 securities license. If he or she does, then it's, it's probable that they aren't a fiduciary. And you have to understand, a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management are subject to the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, which makes us a fiduciary. Okay? And it's so, so important. I mean, we cannot stress this enough to understand the difference. In the same example, a choice for us between an annuity and a portfolio of government bonds as a fiduciary, we have to go with the government bonds because that is what is best for the client, not what is suitable, what is best as a fiduciary. And a non-fiduciary stockbroker follows only the suitability standard, which doesn't require a stockbroker to place the interest of their client ahead of their own. Under the non-fiduciary suitability standard, a stockbroker need provide only suitable advice to it, to their clients, even if the stockbroker knows that the advice is not in the client's best interest. A non-fiduciary stockbroker, you know, bottom line, they have a fiduciary duty to their broker-dealer, to who employs them. That is who they have a fiduciary duty to, not their client. And I can tell you, Dad, when I sit down with prospective clients and I tell them that financial salespeople, stockbrokers, are not required by law to put their interests in front of their own, it blows their mind. But what's what's unfortunate is that individual investors don't understand that there is a difference between what registered investment advisors do, what we do here, versus what a broker does. It was the manager at Bayesian Company that I worked for as a manager that led me to become a registered investment advisor. That you worked as a broker for. Yes, I worked as a broker for them. One day I was analyzing the bond market. I was sitting at my desk looking at this chart, that chart, and he came up to me and said, John, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what the long bond's doing. And he said, we don't pay you to be an analyst. We pay you to sell securities. We're not in the business of analyzing markets, managing money. We're in the business of selling securities. The light went on in my head, and from that day forward, I chose the path of becoming a registered investment advisor. And it all went back to the manager at a brokerage firm and a young broker trying to understand and help his clients. And a registered investment advisor must follow the trust standard, and it's the highest known in law, which requires an RIA, a registered investment advisor, to place the interest of their client ahead of their own to fulfill the critical fiduciary duties of trust and confidence. So, again, that's that trust standard versus the suitability standard. And this is why when you go to the big-name brand broker-dealers, I mean, you can list them off. There's commercials all over the place, all over television, radio, the computer for these, for these firms. You know, you have to understand they're in the job of asset collection, asset harvesting to sell investment products. 
And it's also important when we come back from the bottom of the hour break to, to go into a lot of the proprietary relationships that are in place with your traditional broker-dealers and mutual fund families and other investment product providers to understand. And really, I think what also led a lot of investors to, to have received advice during the financial crisis of staying the course and why that advice came so much so from your traditional broker-dealer or stock brokerage-type firms. And so we'll get into that when we come back from the, from the commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing discussing that critical difference between your traditional stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the proprietary relationships that brokerage firms have. Now, prior to joining Davidson Capital Management, I spent a few years uh, as a mutual fund wholesaler where my clients as a mutual fund wholesaler were stockbrokers. I sold my company's loaded mutual funds to brokers in the state of Texas because that was part of my territory in the state of Texas. And it's important for investors to understand of these relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms. Um, in every single mutual fund family, you're going to have a mutual fund family that has some great mutual funds, some decent to average mutual funds, and some not-so-good mutual funds. Dogs. Dogs. Poor performing mutual funds. But a lot of these brokerage offices have very limited shelf space of the mutual fund families that they want really prominently displayed in the office. And sometimes in order to get shelf space, there are marketing fees that are paid and things of that nature. Now, again, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s when I did the, you know, when I was a mutual fund wholesaler. Um, it's important to understand that a mutual fund wholesaler's job is to gain a relationship with a broker and to educate them about the mutual funds that are being made available by the fund family and sell them on why they need to be selling these funds to the clients. But it's also important for clients to understand that some mutual fund families have revenue sharing agreements with brokerage firms where the brokerage firm collects a portion of the management fee being charged by the mutual fund family for those clients' assets to be in there. And really the point I'm working towards is getting back to the financial crisis. Because when we're meeting with prospective clients after the financial crisis, we always, when we do our portfolio reviews and analysis, I always ask, well, what was the advice and guidance that you were receiving from your investment professional, from your broker during the financial crisis? And 10 out of 10 times, the advice was stay the course. 
And they were the prospective client would question me, you know, why was the advice stay the course? Why wasn't it like let's get a little more liquid, let's let's get some money on the sidelines, let's get some cash on hand? And I really, and again, in 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 my 17 years of experience, what my mind leads back to is revenue sharing agreements that brokerage firms have with mutual fund families and other financial product providers that if assets are not in these mutual funds, then there's no revenue to share because there's no management fee being generated by the mutual fund family. So if advice coming from brokers to their clients was let's sell, let's get more liquid, then these brokerage firms could be slicing their own throat and the revenues that they're that that are being driven that they're being driven off of these mutual fund holdings by their clients at these brokerage firms, so it would have seriously cut into their bottom line if it was let's get out, let's get liquid because now there's no revenue coming from these outside mutual fund families, and it's important for investors to understand. And I can tell you that when we do portfolio reviews and analysis, and particularly there's certain brokerage firms that have affinity, that have love for very particular mutual fund families. Well, you can basically name a firm, and we will name without even look, without even looking at the portfolio, not even seeing the portfolio. We could bet the potential client you own one of these funds from a particular fund family. Just because we've been doing this, you know, in our 26th year of business, and we've reviewed quite a few portfolios in those 26 years, we see a pattern, we see a trend, and because of my inside intimate knowledge of the relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms, it's no surprise. Now, listeners are probably, you know, y'all are probably hearing this on the radio thinking, well, gosh, how could brokerage firms do this? It's suitable. They're in, it's suitable. It's suitable. It's, it's suitable. It, it, it's they're suitable. not violating any rules. They're not violating any laws. That is the whole point of this second hour is so you understand. There's a great commercial on right now. I love this commercial because it really sums up what we're talking about. And it's these two gentlemen, and he's giving the guidance to the prospective client, and he hands him this giant grain of salt. <laughs> And he hands it to him, and he says, you know, we're going to be in this fund, this fund, this fund. And he says, oh, by the way, I get paid a higher commission and higher trailing fees on this because of our proprietary relationship, you know, with these these funds. And he said, well, you know, shouldn't that be illegal? And he's kind of like... Yeah, I, well, no. no, not really. I mean, he kind of has a look like, well, I guess you got a point. But no, it's not illegal. But I'm going to be making higher higher fees off this proprietary relationship that we have with these fund families. And I love that commercial. It's just started playing, so I'm sure our listeners have seen this commercial. Pay attention to it because that is what we are talking about. Well, you know, there's another commercial that the financial consultants are doing in which they hired a DJ in Dallas and they cleaned him up, got rid of his dreadlocks. He's really a nice-looking guy. Well, no, that's talking about financial planners, and I have a whole other bone to pick about financial planners, yes, but, which I'll get to. But within this, he looks the part. They put him in a he nice office. He sounds the off- part. They put him in a nice office, you know, glass, uh, everything you would want. He's got the columns. He's got the suit. He's smooth-talking. 
Will you, and, and he asked him, would you give me the account? Well, sure we would. And he said, would you like to know what my experience is? And, and I'm a my, DJ. You know, I'm a DJ. And he shows pictures of him, you know, dancing around. So, uh, you know, again, but I think that also comes back to another article, which we're not going to talk about on this weekend show, about just the number of, don't, don't let the number of accolades and awards received by a financial <laughs> professional dazzle you, think, making you think that they have a higher level of expertise or experience and experience than they actually do because again it's all marketing um but you know i will i do want to talk about uh financial planners before we go to the next break because this is something we've also talked about on the show and financial planning has has really become a a really booming industry and there are designations a certified financial planner which is a very difficult designation to get you have to go through a lot of education a lot of test taking it is not easy to do plus you have to have industry experience to get the CFP designation and we're not taking away from that because it's a very prestigious designation it is but you have to be very very careful how this potential financial how this financial planner is getting compensated because we have seen situations where financial planners are using this financial planning designation as another marketing tool as a way to sell investment products as a way to generate commissions so you have to ask as the prospective client how are you getting compensated are you fee only are you fee based financial planner or are you selling investment products where you're earning a commission and you need to ask those questions and if they're not giving you a straight answer that is when you slowly get up from the table and you walk away you as a prospective client have the right to ask a straight straight up question and get a straight up answer ask them do you have your series 7 if they have a series 7 pretty good chance they're compensated on commissions and that's when with the whole situation with suitability versus the fiduciary standard if they say well I have my 65 which is to be a, a registered investment advisor representative without a series 7 or a series 6 then they be leaning more on the side of fee only and of course at Davidson Capital Management we are completely fee only registered investment advisors which puts us on the same side of the table as our clients because the more money we make for our clients the more money we make for ourselves and vice versa we are not compensated based on commission and being a registered investment advisor means that we are fiduciaries we have to follow the trust standard required by law to put our clients interest in front of our own but you have to understand these differences when you sit down with a financial professional to understand who you're potentially getting involved in and don't let a lot of letters after their name on the card dazzle you into thinking that they have a level of expertise and knowledge that they may or may not have. You have to vet them out yourself. You have to dig deeper. As I have said, going back to 2005 on this radio show, and you know what we've also talked about on the show is the way that you can look up your investment professional that you're thinking of working with or who you or who you are currently working with simply by going to Google 
typing in the Google search broker check, and that will take you to the FINRA website. And FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing the really the financial sales arm of the financial service industry. You type in your broker's name, and it will go to their report. Now, the one thing to keep in mind, and I've seen this, is that we've seen brokers starting to use middle names or different first names to try to get around potential bad reports. I've noticed this, that they make these name changes so you can't track them down as easily, but you still have that tool available as a prospective client to go in and do research on that investment professional to find out if they have any regulatory issues, any customer complaints, what those complaints are involved, to see if they have any personal bankruptcy or personal financial issues, or if they've had any criminal misdemeanor or felony charges in their lifetime. So utilize the tools that are available. Well, we've got to take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to commercial break, again, spending the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program talking about, again, the critical differences between a stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, and, and, and also at the beginning of the hour talking about how the SEC is still in the process of studying to find out whether they're going to hold traditional stockbrokers to the same fiduciary standard as we are held to as a registered investment advisor here at Davidson Capital Management. And I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing saga that's never going to reach a conclusion um, because, again, I think that this would put a serious uh, dampening on revenues at traditional broker-dealer firms across this country. So I'm definitely not holding my breath. The fact that this that this provision or, or the discussion of adding this provision has been around since the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, and we're now in 2015, and the head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, has only been intensely studying it for the last few months, I'm not holding my breath no, that anything is going to get done. To so what you have to do as an investor, you have to arm yourself with knowledge. That's one reason why we have the Money Wise program and why we're in our 10th year of doing it. But you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to be an educated consumer. And before you sign on that line is dotted, you have to utilize all the, the research capabilities that are available on the Internet. And as we went to the last commercial break, talking about utilizing the FINRA website, which is the regulatory body of broker-dealers, of stockbrokers, and doing what's called a broker check by Googling broker check. takes you right to the website. You type in your broker's name, and you pull up their permanent record. I always jokingly <laughs> say, you know, in high the school, yeah, the in high school you've got your permanent record. Well, in the financial service industry, whether you're a registered investment advisor like we are, or if you're a or if you're a stockbroker, we all have a permanent record called our U four. 
and it tracks you throughout your entire career. So if you've had run-ins with client complaints, customer complaints, and what those complaints are, to see that if you've actually gotten sued by a former client and actually had to pay restitution, or if the brokerage firm or firm you worked for had to pay restitution. It talks about if you've had any kind of bankruptcies or personal financial uh, issues that is also reported in the U4 on broker check, or if you've had any misdemeanor or felony charges. And, I mean, I know for a fact, just from doing my own research, that we have an insurance salesman here in town that avoided a potential 10 years in prison on a drug felony charge <laughs> because of illegal search and seizure. I found this on broker check. I found this on broker check. I found a gentleman here in town, a prospective client, was getting ready to hand over over a million dollars of his hard work, his life savings, and this financial professional had filed bankruptcy three separate times. Now, I understand people run into financial difficulties. You know, I'm not making light of that. But if you've run into a situation where you've had to file bankruptcy multiple times and you can't keep your own financial house in order... I, as a prospective client, I would be a little nervous turning over my life savings to someone who's a financial professional who can't keep their own financial house in order. There's just no reason for people to do this when this is available to them. That's right. And, and, and again, you're going to go and, and look up financial professionals that have a very clean record, but it's also going to show you what licensing they have going back to this, that if they have a Series 7, that their compensation can come in the form of commissions. So again, knowing that they're on the financial sales side of the business, um, you know, for us at Davidson Capital Management, having our Series 65 as a registered representative of a registered investment advisory firm, we follow the fiduciary standard that we have to follow as an RIA. I haven't seen numbers. I know once upon a time, I think we quoted there's 15,000 of us. And there's over 300,000 of them. Closer to 400,000. Cool. I mean, Registered Investment Advisors is a very small minority in the financial service industry. So you're more often than not going to run into a traditional stockbroker than you are a registered investment advisor. Now, I, I want to just kind of give this blanket disclosure. You know, we're not using this hour to beat up on brokers. There are a lot of good, hardworking brokers. In fact, one of my friends is a broker that, that are, do right by their client, that do a good job. But you have to understand as an investor what type of an investor you are. If you're the type of an investor that likes to call the shots of what's bought and what's sold in your portfolio and when that occurs, you're best suited to work with a stockbroker. Though that's really what they're there for. They, you can ask them questions. They can give you some advice and guidance. You can bounce investment ideas off of them. They can give you their personal opinion, and they can process the trades for you. If you're the type of investor that doesn't want to have that control, that wants to turn over the decision-making on a day-to-day -day basis to the investment professional, then you're best suited to work with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management. And you have to understand, the brokerage industry over the last 15-plus years, because of the pressure they've been feeling from registered investment advisory firms like us, have developed programs to give you that active asset management from either themselves at the brokerage firm 
or an outside money management firm that they partner with. But you have to understand that your broker is not the person that is making those day-to-day decisions. Your broker is nothing more than the middleman of that transaction. They're getting paid a fee to steer your money to an outside asset manager or to the home office to an asset management group that you will have no relationship with. They won't know you from Adam. And you're paying an extra layer of fees on top to have your broker being nothing more than a mouthpiece in this transaction where instead of working directly with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management, you eliminate that extra layer of fees. You go directly to the source and you have that personal relationship with that investment professional who's making those day-to-day decisions with your assets. You can look at them in the white of their eyes when you're working directly with a registered investment advisor. So you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to understand those critical differences between a broker and a registered investment advisor and the differences between what is suitable, what brokers follow, and what registered investment advisors follow as a fiduciary and following that fiduciary standard. And if any of our listeners want more education, do not hesitate to pick up the phone and give us a call at Davidson Capital Management at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. From my father, John, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.